I want you to imagine here <clears throat> for just a second. You're a little bird. I don't know what kind of bird. You can pick whatever kind of bird. Maybe ostrich. It's not a little bird, but you're a bird, <clears throat> and you are working so hard to crack your way out of that little egg. It's a lot of work when you're an unborn chick. You're working to get out, and you get that beak out, and that's all you can see is a little beak kind of cracking through the eggshell. <clears throat> Eventually, you get your head all the way through, and then I don't know what you do from there. You just kind of wiggle your bird shoulders out, and you get out, and you're in a, a whole new world, all new kinds of things to see. Not that your eyes are working all that effectively, but you, you come out of the egg with this instinctual knowledge that you didn't create yourself, and there must be someone or something out there that's going to provide for you, that's going to care for you. And in the animal realm, there's a thing called imprinting that happens especially with birds, that that, that first thing that you make contact with, you assume to be your mother. And so you <clears throat> have just emerged and drawn your first little bird breaths, and you hear this noise, this tweet, honk, quack, whatever it is, and Although you've never heard it before, it sounds really familiar. And you are drawn to it. And, and your eyes are not quite ready to focus, but you waddle, whatever birds do, um, over to this sound. And your eyes begin to see this, this shape that you're not quite sure what it is. And then your nose starts to smell a scent that identifies that blurry, noise-making thing as your mother. It's amazing how this imprinting works. There's even stories of people that are into bird conservation, that where the mother bird has died while the chicks are in the egg, that the um, researcher, conservationist, will be identified, will be imprinted upon, and that bird thinks that that human scientist researcher is their mother. There's even stories of <clears throat> guys, and this is crazy, in those little lawn, lawnmower-powered ultralights, that because they've been imprinted upon, they'll get up and fly with a whole flock of birds to teach them how to migrate, and they'll think that that man in that ultralight is their mother. There's just this instinctual sense in which we know that there is someone out there who is to nurture us and care for us. <coughs> and on this day, today, when we honor our mothers, we would all recognize that who we are is shaped by that mother's presence. In the same way, spiritually speaking, it is the role of the Holy Spirit to put God's imprint upon us and for us to be indelibly changed because of that imprinting. And the way that God does this is through the nurturing role of His Holy Spirit. So appropriately today, as we continue in our series, but also pay attention culturally to the day that this is, we're talking about the nurturing, <clears throat> empowering, and indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, before we get too far, there's a couple foundation stones that I want to make sure that we kind of keep on the, on the bottom of this <coughs> platform that we're trying to build. Uh, four quick things <clears throat> that will remind you of some of the places that we've been and where we intend to go. Number one, it's important for us to remember the Spirit's main mission, the Spirit's main mission. And the Spirit's main mission is to 
witness to, to testify about and to glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit did not come to make much of himself. The Holy Spirit came to make much of God. So his main mission is not for you to get up and run around the sanctuary. It's not for you to have some kind of ecstatic speech. The Spirit's main mission is to witness to, to testify about, and to glorify the Son. Now here's the second thing. It's not simply and solely the Holy Spirit's job to be a witness. He makes us witnesses too. And he makes us witnesses specifically through our proclamation and sanctification. Two big words. Two big words. Our proclamation and our sanctification. That's Bibleese for saying through word and deed. The words that we share, whether you are a preacher behind a pulpit, you are a proclaimer if you share the name of Jesus. So through your words proclaiming, through your living, your sanctification, God has, through his spirit, made us witnesses too, because the spirit's main role is to be a witness. Number three, all you potential Jedis out there, the Holy Spirit's not a force. He's not a ghost like Casper, the friendly ghost. He's a person. And sometimes at Christmas, it's the only time that I know that we actually refer to this name of Jesus, but at Christmas time, we refer to Jesus as Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That is Jesus' name. Jesus came and incarnated himself to be with us, but the Holy Spirit is God in us. That's an amazing thing. It is awesome that, God, that Jesus was with us, but he's not here now. He said that he's leaving and he's sending proverbially his twin brother, another counselor, one that is like him, to be in us forever. And the Spirit does many other things too. Today, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit identifies us to God and God to us, but he also works on our sanctification. He encourages our participation. He arranges our organization, all kinds of ways that the Spirit is involved in our life. Now, here's here's a point that I want us to establish on the front end, and we've talked about this for two weeks. God wants you to know his presence and his power in your life. God wants you to know his presence and his power in your life. And my concern is, and I I am saying this derogatorily, is we have drawn a box called religion, and we are more content with knowing about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit than we are knowing Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So if, if your Sunday morning ritual consists of staying inside that box, God wants to blow the box up. God wants you to know him. He wants you to know his presence. He wants you to know his power, not for it to fit nice and neat and tidy in a little box called religion. That's not what he wants. And here's how I know that God wants you to know this, is God works for you to be assured of certain knowledge, not guessing, 1 John 5.13 doesn't have anything to do with our topic this morning, but John gives a purpose statement for why he writes 1 John. In 1 John 5.13, he says, I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. He doesn't want you to guess. What good does it do to have eternal life if you don't know that you have it? I mean, that'd be like saying, what if you were a millionaire and just didn't realize it? I mean, you'd go home and you'd have bread and water. You would have an inheritance you're completely not tapped into because you're living contrary to what the knowledge is. And so God doesn't want you to guess about his power and presence in your life. He wants you to know, to have certain knowledge, to be assured of it. And one of the ways that he assures us of our salvation 
is by the presence of this Holy Spirit in our life. And we use a variety of words for this, indwelling, baptizing, being united to Christ, the Spirit living in our heart. But this is an important issue. And this raises all kinds of questions for us. We start to talk about the Spirit's indwelling, baptizing, and empowering presence. How do we experience God's Spirit? Who gets this experience? Why does God do things the way that He does? That's our sermon outline this morning. Answering those questions. So number one, how do we experience God's indwelling presence? Well, we, we got to see kind of the start of that uh, for Carissa this morning. And in John chapter 3, there are many things about our Lord and Savior that you will love and appreciate, but there is one title for Jesus that you won't find in any of your theology um, notebooks. You won't find it in your study Bible, <clears throat> but it doesn't change the truth of it one whit. Uh, Jesus, in addition to the many wonderful things that he was and did, also was a late-night talk show host. You didn't know that, did you? John chapter 3, there's a man of the Pharisees by the name of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night. Why did he go to Jesus at night? Because he could put that hood up and he could walk in the shadows and he could get to Jesus to talk to him without anybody knowing what was going on. So Jesus has a very late night conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a part of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees don't like Jesus, but Nicodemus puts his cards on the table. And he says, no one could teach the way that you teach. No one could do the things that you do if you indeed weren't from God. So tell me, how do I get to know this God that you are representing? And Jesus says something really simple, but incredibly complex. You can hear these words that Jesus says. You can read them on the page, you can hear them from my voice and still not understand it. This is one of the, the mysteries of what the Christian life is like. Some people come to church and they go, I just don't get it. I, I feel like I just wasted two hours of my life. And there are some of you that get life from being here. So what makes the difference? <clears throat> Jesus says, if you want to experience the power of God, you must be born again. All right, biologically, that's messed up. Because like, I can understand how six-pound me could fit in my mom's womb. Let's just say I'm not six pounds anymore. I have grown just a little bit since um, mom expelled me. She kicked me out. And um, Nicodemus struggles with that. He goes, so you're telling me that I have to be rebirthed and I need to go, how can a man enter back into his mother's womb again. Well, here's what's happening with Jesus. It happens with parents all the time. And I don't know if you have parented long enough to know this, but it is, it is entirely possible. This happens to me regularly, where I'm in a conversation with my kids, and I'm talking about one thing, and I think I'm communicating, and they're talking back to me, and I, it's after like five minutes that I figure out that what I'm talking about and what they are talking about is not the same thing. Has that ever happened to anybody? You're having that conversation, and you, you're engaged, and you think that the conversation is effective at communicating truth, and then you find out, no, 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 we're using the same words, but we're actually communicating two different things. That's what's happening with Jesus and Nicodemus. There's this huge contrast between what is true biologically and physically and what is true supernaturally and spiritually. So in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, <clears throat> Jesus makes it very clear that the only pathway to experiencing God is by being born again. 
There's, there is no self-help seminar. There is no book in Oprah's book club. There is no um, leadership seminar where you can get coached up to being born again. It's something that only God can do. And so in this conversation, we see Jesus contrast the natural versus the spiritual multiple times. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Here's what he says. I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus says, you have been born of water. What's that a reference to? Listen, every man, when their wife is fully pregnant, ready to pop, is waiting for those magic words, my water has broken. Because every man thinks that they get entered in the Indianapolis 500 for the, the next, I, I have indulgence to, there's even one person in our congregation, on our staff, who actually called and told the police that he was going to speed and don't bother stopping me. And when they asked for his driver's license number, he hung up. And so um, every man waits for those words. Uh, my water has broken because that signifies that the baby is on its way. And Jesus says it's important for everyone to be born of water. It's just as equally born. If you're going to be alive, you will not be alive if you're not born of water. You're not physically born. Jesus says you must be born of the Spirit. He draws another contrast. Says, uh, what's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the Spirit is spirit. You have been born, but you need to be born again. So why is this concept of spiritual birth so important? It's really pretty simple. Every single one of us <coughs> is stuck in Nick's world. Nicodemus. I mean, you have biological life. I mean, put the mirror up and <laughs> you have breath. You have life. But you are stuck in the physical realm until the spirit makes you alive. Over here, you are D-E-A-D, dead. Dead, not sick, not in the emergency room waiting for the magic juice to drip into your RV. Your, your RV, your IV. It's summertime. Vacation's coming up. Can you tell? Drip into your RV. Drip into your IV. You need the Spirit to make you alive. And the Bible's very clear about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 says, Guys, we're stuck. We are stuck in the physical world, and we have to be born again into the spiritual world. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says. And you all, addressing the letter to Ephesians Christians, all y'all, if he was in the south, all y'all were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercised authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. Paul is here doing us a favor. He is sharing every Christian's testimony right here. And he's saying, this is what we all were. We were all disobedient. 
We were all, by nature, children of wrath. We were born into the physical world, but we were incapable of changing the circumstances of our spiritual birth. Just as you don't pick when you're born, who you're born to, what time you're born, what day you're born, what country you're born in, it is God who sovereignly must make you alive. And so he says, hey, listen, I know there's nobody here like this, but if in your justified and sanctified state, you begin to um, <clears throat> get a little proud of just how right and how good you are. And this world would be fixed if everybody was just like you. And you allow the goodness that God by His Spirit has sovereignly worked into your life. Number one, you cannot, you dare not take credit for that. Because either God did it or you did it. And I'll trust it if God did it. I won't trust it if you did it. You cannot take credit for it and you should not lift up that big honking nose of yours to look down at everybody else who doesn't live up to what you think your moral code is. The Bible says you can't do that because you were one of them. The Bible says what we all were, we were all dead. We're no better than anyone else, but for the grace of God. Now we are different. And he goes on in verse 4 to say what we are. Verse 4, we were dead, children of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and he seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's beautiful. God has made us alive. And he uses specific death and resurrection language. You are dead and God has raised you up. He has resurrected you. He has given you life in Christ. How does he do this? Two verses that are important. Romans chapter one, verse four says that Jesus's own resurrection, the thing that we celebrate at Easter was specifically effected by the Holy Spirit. Look at what one four says. Jesus, who has been declared to be the powerful son of God. How was he declared? By the resurrection from the dead. How did this happen? According to the spirit of holiness. What's the spirit of holiness? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revivified, reanimated, uh, resurrected Jesus. And Jesus even says from his very own lips in John chapter 6, verse 63, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Not a thing. It is the Spirit who causes our rebirth. So if you want to know how to experience the indwelling nature of God, you don't, you don't skip over the cross and the resurrection to get to the Spirit. You go through the cross and the resurrection. You understand that you're dead and you allow the Spirit to draw you to life. That's why two people sitting next to each other on the same pew, listening to the same message. One will hear and their heart will leap for joy and one will hear and it will be like bullets bouncing off a tank because the Spirit has made one person alive. And the Bible says apart from the Spirit, Christianity is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's not very politically correct, is it? But it's what the Bible says. It's not gonna make any sense to you until you allow the Spirit to work in your life. So who has this indwelling experience? 
You go, man, this sounds good. Well, it's people who were born again. But who has this? Now, this is, this is a very important subject because there, are, there is a lot of false and bad teaching out there about the nature of the Holy Spirit. So here's my warning. Watch out for people whose teaching divides believers into the haves and to the have-nots. The Bible has one ultimate division. You know what the division is? Believer or non-believer. Once you're in the believer camp, there is no division. There, 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 are, there is teaching out there among some denominations that says you don't really get the Holy Spirit until you've experienced some kind of second blessing. There is something, getting saved isn't enough. There's some kind of post-salvation experience that you must have if you really want the Holy Spirit. That's a problem. That's a problem. Because now it makes God look like some kind of spiritual entrepreneur who's trying to like get you to buy the full package. And so there are some believers out there who get the Holy Spirit premium edition, which is in a box set. It's a collector's version. Man, it's really good. You want that one on your bookshelf. You want the Holy Spirit premium edition, and you'll get to speak in tongues and all kinds of stuff like that, and that will prove that you've got the, 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 the platinum version, and then all the rest of us get some kind of cheap value edition that's manufactured in China. That's not how God uh, blesses people with the Holy Spirit. Contingent upon what we do. And so the Bible completely, totally, absolutely rejects any kind of two-stage Christianity. Now, I, I will say, I do think there are second blessings and third blessings and fourth blessings and fifth blessings. You know what the blessings are? Every time you obey. There is no second blessing where like some kind of climactic experience happens that now you're a super Christian. It is a blessing every time you obey and you know you have honored your Father, that you have allowed the Spirit to work in your life and to motivate you to do hard things that you don't even think you can do. That's a blessing. But the, the way some of these denominations talk about second blessings and these people have the Spirit and these people don't is completely bogus. Think about this for a second. All right? We are saved because of what Jesus did for us. It's enough to take us to heaven. And there are some people that in their second blessing theology make it sound like, well, what, what Jesus did really isn't quite sufficient. And if you're just a normal, busted, broken Christian, you don't have the Spirit. So now what we've done is we've taken the members of the Trinity who are supposed to be on the same team, and we've now made them track stars instead of football players. They're individual athletes instead of on the same team. Now, what Jesus did is not enough for you. What you need is the Spirit. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus and the Spirit are on the same team. Why in the world would we embrace a theology that makes enemies of friends? Why would we not believe that the God who sent His Son to die for us would also give us the Spirit to help us to live for Him? So we don't want to do anything in our theology that pits the members of the Trinity against each other. It's not good. So there's all kinds of scriptures that we can look at because this is a huge teaching about who experiences this indwelling. My goal is not to pick a fight with other denominations. My goal is to expose problem areas of teachings to the truth of the scripture and let you figure out, okay, yeah, this is really what the Bible teaches. So there, there's a lot of scripture passages we could go to. Uh, just a couple that we're going to look at. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 16. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 16 says this. You are not in the flesh. If you are a believer, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed, if, if, 
Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Friends, the truth that Romans 8 9 is expressing here is that possessing the Spirit means belonging to Christ. Possessing the Spirit means belonging to Jesus. And if you don't, you don't. There is no non-Spirit-filled person. Now, you might leak a whole lot. You might have some holes that need to get plugged up. The Spirit should be present in your life. Possessing the Spirit means belonging to Jesus. It says it very clearly. If you have the Spirit, you belong to Jesus. If you don't, then you don't. Romans 8, 16 says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. So who has the Spirit? Romans 8, 16 answers, the children of God. Who are the children of God? Just people who have had this second blessing experience and speak in tongues? No. Even people who subscribe to second blessing theology would not have the audacity to say, well, you know what? You don't really count if you don't have the second blessing and you don't speak in tongues. No one would have the audacity to say that. The point here is that every single one of God's children have his spirit. Everyone. <clears throat> we'll talk in a few weeks about what it means to be filled with the spirit, to walk in the spirit, to experience the fruit of the spirit. Well, let me give you a phrase here that I think is very helpful. When we talk about the, the nature and the doctrine, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, you don't ever get more of the Holy Spirit. You, you've got all of the Holy Spirit you're going to get. The Holy Spirit gets more of you. And I think if we get into this situation where we think that God is withholding things from us that will make us live more fruitful lives, there's a danger in walking down that road. You have the Spirit. The Bible makes very clear, if you're a child of God, you've got the Spirit. The question is, does the Spirit have you? Are you quenching the Spirit? Are you grieving the Spirit? Are you actively trying to walk in the Spirit? Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The Bible says this, For by one Spirit... We were, oh, Keith, man, can you blow that word up? I can't see that next word. For by one spirit, we were, can anybody see that? Thank you. All baptized into one body. No matter who your mom is, whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're slave or free, we were, man, what's that word again? All made to drink of one spirit. What's that verse tell you? Who's got the Spirit? Everyone. Who names the name of Christ? We were all, as believers, baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. Everyone who names the name of Christ, who has drunk of the Spirit, who has been baptized in the body, everyone has the Spirit. So the point here this morning is if you are spiritually alive, you know why it is? It's because in you, The Holy Spirit resides. Is that good news? That despite your own animosity and rebellion against your Creator and Redeemer, that God, even in the midst of your sin, He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He came and freely offered the death of His Son. He didn't send some intern. He didn't send some minimum wage employee. He sent His Son to come and pay the price for your sin. 
The Spirit has worked on your behalf if you are a believer. And more than that, it's not like God has just saved you and kind of left you to figure out life on your own. He's given you His Spirit to live inside you, to convict you, to point you in the right direction, to help you make good decisions. So He has saved you, and He is working on you. I don't know if there's anything more praiseworthy for us to focus on this morning than the fact that God by His Spirit has saved us and is working on us to make us more like Jesus. So I'm going to ask, we're not done, but would you pray with me and thank God for the work of the Spirit in your life? Father, we know from your word very clearly that you have told us that we are rebels to your reign in our life. And we thank you this morning that by your Spirit, you have overcome our animosity and our hostility and you have made us alive together in Christ Jesus. Father, even more than that, You didn't just do something at one point in time. But if we are believers, you are continually, present tense, actively conforming us to the image of Christ if we are obeying. Father, today, if we are a Christian who does not know your power, it's because we are disobeying. It's not because of any lack or deficiency in the spirit that you gave. So I ask that for those that hear my voice today, if they do not know your presence and power in their life, that you would, by your Spirit, convict them to repent. But for those of us that are living in the midst of your grace, help us in our hearts to rejoice at the amazing things that you have done for us through your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's important for us to pause and reflect and say thank you for the amazing things that he's done. Making us alive, in present tense, continuing to work on us. But that's not, that's not all that the Spirit has done in our life. It's not just that He's done stuff in the past and in the present. He has other things that He is doing to perfect us, not just now, but in the future. <clears throat> we read Ephesians chapter 2 a few minutes ago. And I don't know if you heard how verse 7 ended up. Why is God doing all these things? Ephesians 2, 7 says this, that God does these things so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, that is awesome news. You know what that means? If you're a believer today, you've got one heck of an inheritance coming your way. God has already blessed you by saving you and working on you to make you more like Jesus. And he will one day in the future make you see the immeasurable, inestimable Riches that he has given you in Christ. The problem is, like where you're at right now and where you will be where you receive that inheritance might be a long time coming. I mean, like, knowing that you're going to get an inheritance is an encouragement. It just maybe doesn't make a whole lot of hill of of beans difference for you right now. So that's where we come to the question about why did God send his indwelling presence? And it's this very thing, because it would be one thing if when we repented and believed, or when we were baptized, um, although I don't want to freak Heather out because it's Mother's Day, you know, when baptism happened, if God would just kind of beam me up, Scotty, and Chris would just go to be with the Lord. I mean, like, it would be nice if that would happen, wouldn't it? There'd be a lot of heartache, there'd be a lot of regrets, there'd be a lot of sin, there'd be a lot of hardship, there'd be a lot of obstacles that you would just miss out. If like the minute you confessed and repented, just 
I don't think that's the sound that it made. I can't, I can't make the sound. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, a Trekkie. But God doesn't do that. Number one, nobody else would get saved because all the Christians would disappear from the face of the earth, so how would there be witness that is given? The point is this. He has a job for us to do, and he leaves us in this lag time between when we get saved and when we actually get our inheritance. So how is he encouraging us in the meantime? That's the reason he's given his spirit. A couple quick verses that I want to read for you that, that talk about a concept that is important for us to understand. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says this, Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He used two words that are incredibly important. He has sealed us and he has done something to give the spirit to mark us off as a pledge. And he talks about sealing us. I don't know if you've ever had to send anything really important through the mail. But if you have to send something really important through the mail, you are not going to rely on your saliva alone to keep that envelope sealed. You know, you're going to lick it. You're going to then get your super glue and your duct tape, and you're going to make sure whatever you can do to seal that envelope. Why why do you want to seal that envelope? You're wanting to protect it from anyone else opening it except for the person to whom it's intended. That's what the Bible says the Spirit does for us. You have an incredible inheritance coming. And there might be a really hard pathway for you to walk. But you need to know, God has sealed you up so that on that day, He will be the only one who can receive to Himself that which He has already purchased. You see, He's bought it. He kind of put it on layaway, and He's waiting for the delivery day. And so He has sealed us for himself. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. No, what's, what's a pledge? If you've been here for any period of time, you know we're in a capital campaign. What do you do in a capital campaign? You receive pledges. It's promises. There are financial promises that over a period of time I will dedicate this much money. It's a financial promise. It's an arrangement by which you make payment. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 kind of provides a great summary. It says, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who that spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So a seal indicates security and possession. That seal. In, in ancient times, you know, a letter or a scroll or some kind of proclamation would be rolled up or folded, and then uh, a gob of hot wax would be dropped on it. And the king would put his seal, like a signet ring, a coat of arms, or an initial, and he'd press it down into that wax so anyone would know that that letter, if it doesn't have your name on it, isn't for you. It's from the king, and you better not open the king's mail. It's like going to somebody else. It's a federal offense to open somebody else's mail. In the same way, the seal of the Holy Spirit indicates security and possession. But here's what's even better. When we talk about the pledge, uh, the word is erabon in the Greek for pledge. And uh, many people translate pledge as a um, down payment. A down payment. But there's even a better 
There's even a better image for describing the pledge of the Spirit that I think is just absolutely beautiful. Not only is the Spirit a down payment, a, 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 a minimal investment in the promise of future greater things to come, here's the other image for the pledge of the Spirit that I think is marvelously beautiful. The Holy Spirit is the engagement ring that God gives to believers in Christ. Now listen, I know the temptation today is to be engaged for like 20 years before you get married. That's not what God's going to do to you. You don't get engaged to stay engaged. You get engaged to get to the wedding day. The engagement is a temporary process, a temporary middle ground between point A and point B. You don't, you don't get engaged and go, finally, I'm engaged. Maybe you do if your guy is like really lazy and slow to kind of get things going. Maybe you celebrate the engagement, but the engagement is not the main issue. The engagement is a uh, process to get to the wedding day. And here's what the Bible says about the Spirit. Not only does the Spirit work effectively in your past to save you and to give you assurance that you're God's child and to work in your life, the Spirit is given to you as a down payment, as an engagement ring to let you know whatever troubles you're going through right now are only temporary, that God will be faithful to come back for His bride, the church. I hope that this morning as we've looked at this, that perhaps these truths from the Scripture have enlightened your mind. But I hope that they have brought joy to your heart as we think about this precious ministry as the Holy Spirit seeks to do kind of like that mother bird tries to do, to imprint herself upon her young so that they will always follow her faithfully. In the same way, the Spirit baptizes us into Christ, gifts us and assures us of our inheritance so that we, in the midst of the painful journey that this life can be, will know that we have received the Holy Spirit of promise as God's engagement ring, His down payment, that even though His Spirit is a blessing to us now, it is just the tip of the iceberg to the massive riches that He has for you in Christ. And I pray today that if you're in a position where you don't know if you're experiencing the power of God. There's really only two possible answers for that. If you're not experiencing the power of God, there's, there's only two answers. Either you don't know the gospel as well as you think you might, or you're actively disobeying the Spirit. And God wants everyone called by His name to know His power and His presence. It would be, I dare say, foolish for you to leave today not experiencing the power of God in your life for one more moment. The conclusion of our service. If this is something that you need to talk about, I will be and our staff will be here at the front. We're not going to do this in front of everybody. Um, but there may be some things for us to talk about, about knowing the gospel, by knowing the gospel, knowing the spirit. And if that's something that you need to do, I, I hope that God will give you the courage to come down and talk with us at the end of the service. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for this message that even though we were rebels, um, we spurned your love. You have given us the best gift of all in the gift of your spirit. You have saved us. You have caused us to be born again. And for that, we rejoice. You are working on us. And for some of us, man, it's a lot of work that you've got to do. But you are faithfully completing your work uh, through the spirit in Christ Jesus in our lives. And Father, you have given us the spirit to be 
the sweetest of consolations as we walk this pilgrim pathway. You have given the Spirit to us as an engagement ring that you will be a faithful husband to us, that you will never forsake your bride, that you will one day return for us and reveal the surpassing greatness of your riches to us in Christ Jesus. Father, those of us who are spiritual, who are made alive by your Spirit, may you allow us by faith to see those riches and desire to follow you as fully and as faithfully as we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?